One Week Season. OWS fam, DFS fam, welcome to the week six edition of the OWS Angles podcast. I am your host. I am your guest. I am JM to win. Throw this baby on 1.5x speed or 2x speed and let's get started. Most of you are probably listening to this on the One Week Season podcast feed because that's where you are used to listening to this. Some of you, however, are watching this on YouTube. So for those of you who are listening, a little quick update. I decided to, so I I haven't done the Angles podcast via video because typically I've got to navigate noise with my wife and the two kids under the age of five in the house. But at this point, kind of in my DFS process. I, I have DFS lab on Friday morning, and then I have my show with Pete Overzet right after that, and my show on Roto Grinder with, with Squirrel Patrol right after that. And then I record the Angles podcast. So because of that, my wife gets the kid, kids out of the house for this whole stretch of time. So I decided to go ahead and try this solo podcast via video format. As Blender HD said to me one time, for some reason, people like watching our faces in boxes on their screens. And it is true that the uh, the videos tend to uh, draw a broader audience than just the the podcast stuff. Easier to share uh, for some of us, easier to consume. So I uh, wanted to go ahead and give this a shot real quickly on that. Typically, if the Angles podcast is an hour long, it takes me an hour and five minutes to record it because there might be a couple times where I pause to collect my thoughts or pause to have a drink of water, whatever it might be. So uh, today, there might be a couple points where hour-long solo podcast um, got to pause for a moment to drink some water or collect my thoughts. But uh, with that, let's go ahead and get started. So I will go ahead and assume that there are some people listening to this, watching this, who aren't typically tuning into the Angles podcast. So if you're new here, if you're newer to OWS, the idea behind the idea behind OWS actually is that DFS is not a game of picking players. DFS is a strategy game. That's not just the idea behind OWS. That is fact. The top DFS players oftentimes are people who don't know the sport all that well, but what they do know is the strategy and game theory of daily fantasy sports. and They're able to apply that to basically any sport that they play. So most content providers are very focused on who are the top plays on the slate, which most projection systems are pretty good at finding that themselves, right? You could just use projections and be in good shape there. And obviously, there are some things that projections are going to miss. There are some things that content providers are going to miss as well. But what we feel is much more critical is not just who are the best plays on this slate, but how do we put those plays onto the best rosters? So DFS success is typically about good rosters as opposed to good players. So Obviously, an inner circle every week. We have my Wednesday Winter Circle podcast that is focused on macro DFS strategy and theory through the lens of the slate behind or the slate ahead. We have the slate podcast on Saturdays in which Hilo and Zandamir break down the strategy for the slate, right? They go game by game or position by position, and they hit on all of the important spots and what they think about those spots. But more importantly, they're diving into how they're approaching it from a strategy 
perspective. And then we have all of the content on the site that is focused on strategies for this week's slate or how we approach this week's slate. So what I often say in the Angles podcast early in the season when there's new people coming to the site, new people listening, is that every week in DFS, there is a unique puzzle that we're trying to put together. And so part of what I try to do with the Angles podcast is show us what the picture on the box looks like for that week. It's going to be much easier for us to put together the puzzle if we know what the picture on the box looks like. So if every week presents us with unique elements and unique angles that we need to pay attention to, then we will be best served understanding those unique elements and those unique angles before we start trying to build rosters, before we start trying to just put good players onto a roster. So uh, if you want more information on what we really mean when we're talking about all of this, uh, become an Inner Circle member or check out the DFS education courses on the site. Uh, but the Angles podcast is a great place for us to focus specifically on that week's slate and, and what that week provides. And again, that then leads into how we put together sharp rosters instead of just picking good players. Rosters that are going to have plus expected value over time. Rosters that if we could play out that slate 100 times, would make money for you. You should have profit as a foregone conclusion for you in DFS. Uh, that actually brings me to the next thing I want to talk about here, which uh, I talked about this on the Winter Circle podcast on Tuesday. So I won't go as in depth here because a lot of you are Inner Circle members. But Brian, one of our editors, one of our do it all guys on OWS, he sent me an email the other day saying, basically saying, it seems like it's about time in the season for you to give your annual pep talk. And he said, I could probably recite this pep talk myself. And he kind of laid out the elements that I hit on every year. So the pep talk is something that typically comes up in my mind around this point in the season, because as I've talked about, I'm typically a, a slow starter in NFL DFS. That didn't used to be the case, but ever since starting, ever since starting OWS, I've been a slow starter in NFL DFS because August is sort of wall to wall. Those of you who've been on the site know I, I even send my wife and kids out of town for two weeks from like the week and a half leading up to kickoff and then that that you know first half of week two, just because I'm working around the clock. And uh, so that doesn't lend itself to being as prepared for the slate because my mind is focused on so many other things. And then on top of that, my edge is being able to marry my DFS strategy and theory with my knowledge of the NFL teams, coaches, players. And so a lot of times it takes a few weeks for that knowledge to get to a point where it is as valuable as I want it to be. Um, this year, you know, I've talked talk about this a lot about how I tend to be a slow starter in NFL DFS. Typically, week six, seven, eight, somewhere in there is when I start playing really well. And somewhere around like week seven, eight, nine, 10, each year, I end up having a big hit in that stretch. Uh, it stretches as far as like week 11 or 12, but somewhere in that range tends to be my sweet spot. So this year I was very focused on, okay, how do I maximize my chances of not starting slow? Uh, and have been fortunate in that, you know, again, if you've been around the site, you know that, uh, you know, I was one point away from first place in the double spy in week four. And had I gotten first place instead of second place, I could have, you know, good week one, good week two, uh, slightly below um, profit week three and then good week four. Uh, I could have actually lost every single entry fee for the rest of the season and still finished at profit, right? And so uh, that also means that I'm like kind of one more really good week in a way from already being at profit on the year. So since I've had this really good start, 
it hadn't been this pep talk thing hadn't been in my mind. So the I'm glad that Brian brought it up to me. And the, the pep talk is that this is such a small sample size so far. We're five weeks into the season. And the way that I typically paint it is only 20% of the tournament field even cashes in most tournaments. One out of every five rosters in most tournaments even finish in the money. So mathematically, if you're playing, say, just playing one roster a weekend, mathematically, only one out of every five weekends should you even finish in the money. Only one out of every five weekends should you even finish at profit. And that can obviously mean that it's not going to be exactly one out of every five weekends. It could mean you go eight, nine weekends without cashing, and then you cash two out of three weekends, right? And so understanding that the math, another way that I've said this is when I played MLB DFS for, for from 2014 to 2017, it wasn't unusual for me to go two full weeks without, as a single entry player or limited entry player, go two full weeks without finishing in the money, go two full, full weeks without having a profitable slate. Uh, and sometimes there have been, there were times when I went even longer than that. So in the context of NFL, that's like going an entire NFL season without finishing in the money. So uh, recognize that just because we're five weeks in and you haven't had a big weekend and that's another reason why I have kind of forgotten, like the, the pep talk wasn't in my mind is because OWS as a whole has had such a hot start to the season and the community as a whole has had such a hot start to the season. The Binks channel has just been full of big caches and big wins every single week. I mean, we've had, I don't know, seven or eight or more six figure wins from the community already. We're only five weeks into the season. So this just hadn't been in my mind, but at the same time, like out of our members, probably still no matter how good the start of the season has been and and no matter like is OWS as a whole profitable on the year i i don't know everybody's entries and entry fees and all that but i think it's pretty safe to say that OWS like the OWS fam is wildly profitable through the first 5 weeks of the season but probably still the majority more than half of OWS members are down money at this point in the season. So if you're in that bucket, recognize that this is still, OWS DFS is a game of putting positive samples into the bucket and letting those samples build up. So don't get discouraged. Recognize that if you keep on the right path, if you keep knocking on the door, you're going to make money in DFS. Now, piggyback off of that is DFS is all about putting positive samples into the bucket. If you are playing one roster a weekend or two or three rosters a weekend, that and you're only playing the main slate, that is that many fewer opportunities for the samples to build up. So one of the things that I often encourage you to do is mess around with afternoon-only slates. If you're an Inner Circle member, you get afternoon-only content, which no other site's really providing. So you're a step ahead of the competition in terms of already having some of that research and thinking on the afternoon-only slates done for you, the strategy thinking on the afternoon-only slates done for you. Focus on showdowns and play those throughout the week. Uh, focus on, if you, if you find that you're good at identifying correlated pickums on underdog, on drafters, on sleeper, and also, as we say, like go to the promo codes section on the site. Uh, in fact, um, I can pull that up right now for those of you who are watching, but go to the um, go to the promo codes section on the site and and pick up the free money from drafters, pick up the free money from prize picks, pick up the free money from underdog. If you are only playing on one site and you've already used your promo code, come over here 
grab this promo code and that's going to be an extra hundred bucks on this side, an extra hundred bucks on prize picks, an extra hundred bucks on underdog, an extra hundred bucks on drafters, an extra hundred bucks on sleeper. And then you can spread out your play around all those sites. You can also shop for better lines on those sites. And so uh, find these places where you can continue building up edges, find these places where you can continue building up money, play more slates, play the, I know some people who only play the Thursday to Monday slates. They don't focus. So they still get those main slate games. They still get action on the main slate, but they're finding a place where they have more of an edge or they're able to increase their sample size. And then again, uh, increase your sample size by, and this is the last thing I'll say on this, but whether it's playing 150 max or realizing that just because you're a single entry three max player doesn't mean that you only have to put in one to three rosters on that weekend. So as I've talked about plenty since I started doing MME middle of last season, all of my MME play is still geared toward how do I have the sharpest possible single entry three max play? Over 75% of my entry fees each weekend are in single entry three max. So that's where I'm, I'm doing all my MME stuff in order to maximize the results from my single entry three max play. But in my single entry three max play, I typically have eight rosters to 12 rosters, sometimes 13, 14 rosters that are going into all of my single entry three max contests. So there tends to be this thought of, well, if I get this roster right, I want it to be in all of my single entry contests. I want to be able to, if I'm finishing first place here, I want to be able to finish first place in all of them. But what are the chances that that one roster, you're going to get that one roster correct? So, you know, I've had all of these second place finishes. I've had, I've had um, a ridiculous number of second place finishes and far fewer first place finishes since the middle of last season. But uh, I've had, I don't know, three, four, five rosters that have finished in the top two in single entry contests. And I think only one of those was my favorite roster of the group. The other ones were my seventh favorite roster or my fifth favorite roster or my ninth favorite roster to where it's like, here's my pool of single entry three max rosters. And I'm putting this one in this one contest or these two contests. Maybe it's not standing out to me as one that I want to have in a bunch of contests, but that ends up being the best performing roster. So what ends up happening is, yeah, it would be nice if my roster that finished in the double spy in week four had been in all of my single entry contests. But if I were just picking one roster that weekend, it wouldn't have been that one. And that roster finishing second was a 20K payout. If it had finished first with, with 1.1 more points, it would have been a 50K payout. So I've had these rosters where it's like, this one picked up 15K or this one picked up 20K, this one picked up 20K, this one picked up 10K, where if it hadn't been, if I had just been trying to select one roster, I wouldn't have had that in single entry three max. And then that ends up, you know, I play 6K a weekend. So that ends up being like a nicely profitable week from that one roster being put into play. So that's another way to increase our sample size is to not restrict yourself to just one roster. So uh, again, don't, don't get down, assess your process. The... If you're not an inner circle member, uh, we'll talk some more deeper into the season about how we can go about assessing our process. If you are an inner circle member, you've probably already listened to this week's winner circle podcast. If you haven't, then I break down, I answer a question on that. Like, how do we assess our process? That's a pretty critical uh, component to listen to and pay attention to, obviously, as well. So uh encourage you to listen to that. And um Yeah. So find those, find those ways to assess your process. Make sure you're playing sharp DFS play. But as long as you're playing sharp plus EV DFS play, then as you keep putting positive samples into the bucket, you're going to make 
money over time, right? And we had also keep in mind, like DFS is all about that one weekend that can make pay for your entire season or for years of DFS play or years of DFS play with a bunch of money left over, right? We've had a user this year, I think it was $136,000 that they won with $19 in entry fee. We had another user in week four win $340,000. And like I said, we've had multiple six-figure caches so far this year. Those types of wins, like that, that's you, you're going to be probably unless you significantly increase your buy-ins, like you're going to be profitable in DFS forever off of that one win. You know what I mean? So uh recognize also that that it's not about like sure, it's great when you're consistently finishing in the money and consistently getting money out. And if you're increasing your sample size, you're going to be able to do that. If you're if you're using the bank machine, if you're building 150 rosters, if you're shopping through those and selecting your sharpest rosters, you're going to have as many profitable weekends as unprofitable weekends, which is kind of crazy in the context of, of DFS, where really we should expect to be mostly unprofitable weekends and then those those spiked weekends. Uh, but if you're kind of approaching things the way that I've talked about over the last year, you are going to actually find that you're being more consistently profitable than most of your competition or than your expectations from the past had been. But even if that's not the case, even if you're kind of you know, smaller samples week in and week out. It's all about that one weekend that that spikes up your whole season and that spikes up several years of your play. So uh, continue putting in positive samples, make sure that you're playing sharp, but as long as you're playing sharp, you're going to make money over time. And again, look for ways to build up that sample size. Uh, speaking of edges, actually, another thing that I want to touch on real quickly. So we talked about the uh, using the promo codes and and just getting this extra money. Uh, if you haven't tapped into the props stuff yet, I mean, it's just pretty crazy, right? We see this. Uh, if you're if you're listening to this, you don't see it on the screen, but um, our props profit right now is nine thousand eight hundred thirty-seven dollars. Uh, last year, the twenty-two twenty-three props insider package was nine thousand two hundred twenty-nine dollars, and almost all of that came from NBA. So to put this into context. NBA hasn't tipped off yet. If we matched what we did last year, our final profit numbers right here, when you look at this next June, NBA is wrapping up, you look at this next June, would say $19,000. So I know that it's an expensive package. There's limited spots and it's an expensive package, right? And we have that set up so that the people who are in the package aren't getting flagged by sports books so that our bets aren't getting flagged by sports books. We have to keep it somewhat limited. There's still... 199 spots left. And I think that those will start going pretty quickly once, once we get to NBA. But again, we do have that monthly option where you pay 170 a month for six months. And then like that gets you access for the full, what there's like eight and a half months remaining of this. So you pay for the whole package by paying those monthly pay downs. Um, and again, even if you're like, if your bankroll doesn't support hundred dollars per unit, your bankroll only supports 20 bucks per unit. Even at 20 bucks per unit, this would be $2,000 in profit already if you'd been here for the whole package. And, you know, again, nothing's guaranteed. But if we finished at the same pace in NBA that we did last year, you know, that's another couple thousand dollars in profit that you would be able to pile up. So that idea of like, where can you find these edges? Where can you find these pieces that you just keep putting into the bucket? Uh, keep finding places, you know, like I'm, I'm, let's see. Uh, I'm up like 26,000, 27,000, something like that in DFS, but then I'm also up like another 5,000 in pickums, right? So it's like, how do you keep finding these little edges and, and the places where you think you don't have an edge, avoid them. Some people aren't good on the main slate. So avoid the main slate. You don't have to play the main slate. Uh, 
find what you are good at and where your edge is. So yeah, keep looking for those places where you can just keep putting positive samples into the bucket, keep positioning yourself for profit over time. Um, and then again, also keep in mind from a, from a pep talk standpoint, keep in mind what we've said in the past, which is that you learn so much in DFS that is going to help you in other areas of life. If you're, if you're really doing this, if you're not just kind of casually going through and clicking buttons, if you're really playing this, I did lower my desk there. Uh, there we go. Um, if you are not just going through and clicking buttons, right, but you're really playing DFS the way that we talk about playing DFS and hunting through the angles and really getting in there and kind of wrestling with the slate each week, um, then you're going to learn so much that's going to help you make money in other areas of life to where you could lose, you could pay a couple hundred bucks a year for an OWS subscription. You could lose a thousand bucks a year in DFS and five years from now you look up and you've made way more money over those five years than you otherwise would have even losing a thousand bucks a year in DFS, right? And then all of a sudden you've hit the right week of, of putting that positive sample in at the right time. You end up, you know, picking up 20 grand, 25 grand in, in profit or whatever it might be. But point being, you could lose money in DFS and still significantly raise your economic ceiling because of how much you learn from seeing all these angles and thinking through these things and, and how much that can play out into other areas of your life. So uh, yeah, hunt for those opportunities to add those edges. With that, let's go ahead and talk about what the picture on the box looks like for this week. So obviously there are the components we hit on in the angles email where it's like, here's the dolphins with an implied total way up here. And then below that there's the Rams. And then way below that is, is all the other teams, you know? Uh, and that's kind of the starting point from the macro of the slate, getting deeper into like the micro in terms of positions and how things stack up on this particular slate. Here's what I'm seeing at the quarterback position. We have no Lamar, we have no Herbert, we have no Mahomes, we have no Josh Allen, we have no Anthony Richardson. So already a lot of our pay up for ceiling options are off the slate. On top of that, we have Jalen Hurts taking on the Jets, which doesn't mean that he can't hit for a nice game, but his chances of burying you for not having played him are much lower because it's a game against the Jets. His chances of you rostering him and him burying everybody else for not having played him are lower because it's this game against the Jets. And then we have Tua who doesn't run the ball, right? So it's got to be the yards and touchdowns have to pile up and the Dolphins have this big implied team total and should blow out the Panthers, but also the Panthers don't have a very good offense. They don't have much opportunity to keep pace. The Panthers have a really solid pass defense and a really bad run defense. So the clear area of attack is there for the Dolphins to lean more on the ground, both in terms of game environment, Dolphins taking a big lead and, and then keeping the ball on the ground and in terms of the matchup. So again, not to say that Tua can't hit, as we've talked about, there's a difference between being a good pass defense in the Dolphins division, a difference between being the Jets, the Bills, the Patriots, and seeing this Dolphins speed machine on the field multiple times and knowing how to build for it and not being just shocked when it comes at you for the first time. And, and there's a dif difference between that and being a good pass defense, like the Panthers, where it's like, yeah, you're a good pass defense, but you haven't seen anything like this before. And you're going to have to adapt to it. You're going to have to prove that you can stop this. So won't surprise me if the Dolphins have a really good game through the air, but how deep into the game are they passing and, and what's the opportunity for 
the yards and the touchdowns should just keep piling up. So again, no Lamar, no Herbert, no Mahomes, no Allen, no Richardson. Uh, Hurts against the Jets, Tua against the Panthers, where the the pass game matchup isn't great, but also the run game matchup is so good. Uh, Panthers shouldn't be able to keep pace. So what that kind of does is it sets this situation up where can Tua score 35? He can, but you know more than likely he's scoring in the 20 to 30 point range. Can Hurts score 35? He can, but more than likely he's scoring in the 20 to 30 point range. So then the question becomes, are there any other quarterbacks who have a pretty clear shot at ascending above 30 points and, and separating from the rest of the quarterbacks on the slate. And then are there, let's say that Tua scores 25 and Hertz scores 27. Are there any guys who cost significantly less and have a pretty good shot at scoring 25 to 30 points and kind of matching those quarterbacks for less in salary. So that's how I see the quarterback position shaping up uh, kind of in that, the, you know, it's Justin Fields is the guy who, hey, here's a guy who could go well above 30 points, really stands out in that category. Then you have what I what I would call the pocket passers who sometimes take off, which is the Trevor Lawrence, the Joe Burrow, the Matthew Stafford, where maybe they get you one point, two points on the ground. Every once in a while, they surprise you with more points than that. But what you're really rostering them for is the passing. Uh, and then you have the cheap guys who can run, which is to me, Desmond Ritter and Josh Dobbs, uh, both guys who will probably go somewhat overlooked. I think Ritter will definitely go overlooked. And I think the Josh Dobbs, uh, after he disappointed a lot of people last week, will probably go somewhat overlooked as well. And there are some other cheap guys that you could look at Gardner Minshew, even Mac Jones. Uh, but, you know, in terms of like who's likeliest to get you 25 plus points, it would be the guys who can pick up some points with their legs because that offsets what you need from them through the air. So that's how I see the quarterback position. The running back position, obviously, we have value opening up. We have Chuba Hubbard with Miles Sanders expected to be out. We have potentially Deontay Foreman with Khalil Herbert out and Roshan Johnson potentially uh, or probably being out. Uh, Roshan Johnson coming back from a concussion. It was on a Thursday night, so that gives him more opportunity to get cleared. But uh, it's been a long time since the NFL has cleared a player from concussion within one week of that concussion happening. So, um, or within, you know, for that player getting cleared for their next game. So uh, assume Roshan Johnson out, Deontay Foreman playing there, not likely to have much, if any, role in the pass game. So yardage and touchdown back. And then we have James Conner out for the Cardinals. Interestingly, you know, Conner was playing basically all the snaps. He's 5,800 and people weren't really going out of their way to play him. So these guys who are, you know, 1K cheaper and are going to be potentially splitting the workload um, aren't maybe as attractive as 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 it might seem on the surface. I mean, even the same thing with Miles Sanders at 5K, now out, Chuba Hubbard at 4,300. Um, so none of those are bad plays, but that just, you know, the, they're not standout plays. I guess I'll say uh, Chuba Hubbard, career best DraftKings game, 21.3 points, 21.4 points, I think it is actually. Uh, typically, he's going to get kind of in this 12 to 16 point range, but that's pretty nice at his price tag. Uh, are there wide receivers down there who might end about scoring him? Yes, but he's also a sharp play. Uh, outside of that value, we have Christian McCaffrey at 9,500. And similar to what we said with Hertz or with Tua, Christian McCaffrey can hit. Christian McCaffrey can always go for 30 points. Um, PJ Walker starting for the Browns. So you would expect some short fields for the 49ers, some opportunities for touchdowns to pile up. But 
Christian McCaffrey, since he joined the 49ers, he's topped 30 DraftKings points four times now. He's topped, I think it's 34.1 DraftKings points once. That was last week. So is the likeliest outcome him going for 30 plus in this spot against one of the, the toughest defenses in the NFL? Uh, that's not the likeliest outcome. So then you've got Christian McCaffrey and then this big gap to all the other guys. So if we if we remove the cheapies from the conversation, which to me, it's really more Chuba Hubbard than anyone else. If we remove the cheapies from the conversation and we, we remove Christian McCaffrey, we really just have this range of, and sure, there's like Ramondre Stevenson at 5,400. There's some other guys in the 5K range, but realistically, you've got these 6K guys with really bankable roles and ceiling and you need these, you know, you're paying just a little bit less to get these guys who, hey, maybe he gets you 20 points, maybe he gets you 25 points. So the focus at running back is kind of in that range. Uh, I won't be going out of my way this week to say, okay, if everybody's building rosters this way, then I want to avoid these running backs and, and move in a different direction. Um, that's just where the sharpest running back plays are, is in that 6.1K to 7.2, or if you like David Montgomery, 7.3K range. Um, I will note that on my show with Squirrel Patrol today, he brought up the idea of a double pay down at running back. I do think that's an interesting way to sneak through with like a, a unique roster construction approach that isn't suboptimal because then you're able to pay up for multiples of these high priced wide receivers who have these 30 plus point ceilings. Uh, so that's one way to go. But generally speaking, you know, for me, it's like it's Chuba Hubbard as a viable cheap guy. There's also, like I said, some viable cheap wide receivers. Uh, and then you've got this 6.1 K to 7.2 K 7.3 K range at running back. Then at wide receiver, we have really a lot of high upside guys. We have guys in the you know 8K and above range, but then we also have guys in the in the 5K range with ceiling. We have guys in the 6K range with ceiling. DJ Moore put up 30 and 50 points in his last two games. Uh, Adam Thielen has a 34 pointer and a 28 pointer or 30 something pointer like in his last few games. He's 5900. Uh, so there are guys that are. Interesting kind of across the board. And even Brandon Ayuk and, and Debo Samuel in a bad matchup against the Browns. But is it going to surprise us if one of them scores 25 to 30 points uh, in these low 6K price tags? So, um, yeah, things are very spread out at wide receiver. On top of that, we have Zay Jones likely out, which keeps the Jags passing attack pretty concentrated. We have uh, Justin Jefferson out, which concentrates things and lowers the price tags and concentrates things on the Minnesota passing attack. We have the Seattle pass catchers as bringbacks on, on what should be a popular passing deck with Cincinnati, but I don't know how many people will be getting over to that Seattle side. So wide receiver, a lot of upside available, a lot of different directions you can go at the position. Uh, and that's kind of what I'm seeing with this, this slate is there's different pricing in terms of how you can approach things from a pricing standpoint. There are different pricing structures you can approach things with at quarterback. Uh, and, and then running back, it's like you either go down to Chuba Hubbard for me, you either go down to Chuba Hubbard or you, and, and maybe I'll get on Deontay Foreman a little bit more as we move deeper into the week. And I don't currently expect to, but uh, you either go down to one of those cheap guys or you just stay in this, this 6K range. And you could go down to two cheap guys. But most most likely, like most of the rosters, the sharpest thing to do is going to be one cheap guy and a 6K guy or two of these 6K guys. So uh, the 
setup and, a, and, and approach in terms of how we're allocating salary to me doesn't provide that many opportunities to say, oh, and here's like a sharper way. Like I think the cheap pay down at running back approach will be pretty popular. And the uh, two mid-tier running backs approach will be pretty popular. So it's not as if we can just find a different way to allocate that salary that really sets us apart. And then on top of that, the, there are attractive wide receivers kind of across the price ranges, right? Like Christian Kirk is attractive at 5,400. Jordan Addison is attractive at 5,700. Garrett Wilson is going to be attractive to a lot of people at 6K. DJ Moore at 6,500. T Higgins, 6,400. Calvin Ridley, 6,700. Chris Godwin with Mike Evans trending toward missing at 6,900. Uh, AJ Brown at 7,800, Puka at 8K, Devante and Jamar Chase, 8,100, 8,300, Cup at 9K. So it's like all the way across the board, there are wide receivers that you can gravitate toward. And so I don't think that people are going to pigeonhole themselves into like, okay, I've got to pay down at running back so I can get two of these high priced wide receivers and I've got to kind of take this mid range quarterback. So I think we'll see a lot of kind of, you know, 6K quarterback rosters, Trevor Lawrence, uh, Matthew Stafford, Joe Burrow. Um, a lot of 6K running back rosters or one 6K and one pay down. And then wide receiver, it can be spread out in terms of how people want to attack that. So I'm worried less this week about paying attention to how the field is going to be building and worried more this week about how I put together these game environments and these players in such a way that I feel like I'm really gaining an edge. And so uh, we'll get to more of that when we get to the player grid, uh, but that gives you kind of a sense of what this slate offers as a whole. In terms of game environments, games that just could ascend well above the others, uh, I've said this, I think I said this in, maybe I didn't say it in the Angles email, I said it somewhere, uh, and I'll, I'll probably mention it again in the player grid, but this Seattle and Cincinnati game, this Minnesota-Chicago game, uh, they're, they're both games that are going to stand out to the field as better games than they really are, or I should say as games with a higher percentage chance of shooting out than they necessarily have. And yet they are still the games on the slate with the highest probability of shooting out. So what ends up happening is people look at the slate. There aren't the clear, there's not Minnesota and, and Los Angeles. They're not the clear shootout games. And so people or, or Miami and Buffalo, there's not the game like that this week. So people then say, what is the best game? Well, the best games, the games like this to shoot out Seattle, Cincinnati, Minnesota, Chicago. And so because those are the top games on this slate, people can inflate the inflate in their thinking, the likelihood of those games shooting out. So those games are less likely to shoot out then the field is going to give them credit for. And yet they are still nevertheless the most likely games on this slate to shoot out. So uh, nothing against those games. I'll probably be a little bit underweight those games, but unintentionally so. In, in, in other words, like just building out my exposures on what's likely to happen will put me a little bit underweight those games because the field might be overrating those games. And yet I will still have a pretty comfortable amount of those games because they are the games on this slate likeliest to shoot out. Uh, Squirrel Patrol was bringing up, you know, that, that really nobody's talking about this Miami passing attack. And we've already touched on the reasons why no one's really talking about it. But we also can't discount the fact that, hey, maybe Tua does throw for four touchdowns. And what I said on my show with, with Squirrel was the, which by the way, if you're not familiar with Squirrel Patrol, 
uh, one of the most successful DFS players of all time, one of the sharpest DFS players. Uh, that show is called Solo Ship. It's on Roto Grinders. It's like 30 minutes long. So uh, you can throw it on 2x speed and, and catch it in a very small amount of time. And I think it's a uh, it's a sharp listen each week. We don't go game by game or position by position so much as we just kind of talk about what we're seeing on the slate. And I always come away from that show with some tidbits that I hadn't been thinking about before and, and hopefully able to contribute some tidbits as well on my end. But um what what I was saying when he was talking about Tua was I was saying, you know, the the percentage chances of Tua throwing for 300 yards and three touchdowns probably aren't higher than the percentage chances of Joe Burrow or Matthew Stafford throwing for 300 yards and three touchdowns. But the outlier scenarios are more attractive on Tua than they are on Stafford and Burrow. So what I mean by that is the chance of of Tua throwing for 303 touchdowns doesn't it doesn't really stand out. He's not like, oh yeah, he's a better play than these other guys. But Tua is likelier than the other guys to have a four touchdown game or a five touchdown game because Miami could score 42 points. And we saw it last week with with people weren't on Jared Goff because again, easier to run against the Panthers than, than to pass. We know the Lions like to run the ball. And uh all of a sudden, you know, Jared Goff only throws for 240 yards, but he throws for three touchdown passes and gets another one on the ground and ends up being one of the top GPP plays on the slate. So Tua, obviously a better shot than Goff at going for 300 yards. And then if he, if he accounts for four touchdowns or five touchdowns, which is more within his range of outcomes than it is for Burrow or uh, Stafford, then he ends up being a really nice piece. So uh, I think that that Miami side is interesting. Again, really like the Cincinnati side. I'll have some Gino kind of trailing my Burrow builds, uh, basically saying like, well, we know that we need the game environment as a whole to go off with, with Seattle, Cincinnati, which means that, that presumably Gino's got a chance to pile up touchdowns and people will be less on him. Uh, really like the Stafford play, but also recognizing from that conversation with squirrel, with squirrel patrol, like, yeah, the, the two a play is more attractive than I was giving it credit for, especially to the, to the outlier uh, scenarios where what really wins you a tournament oftentimes are those outlier scenarios. Uh, so that's an interesting spot to consider. And then another game that I think is really interesting is Washington at Atlanta. So Washington three out of five games this year have combined for 60 plus points. Four out of five games this year, Washington has allowed 30 plus points. I think it's actually 33 plus points to their opponents in four out of five games. So will the Falcons throw the ball as much as we want? I don't know. But, you know, where our our perception of the Falcons is still being built off of what we saw last year when Marcus Mariota was the quarterback. And Marcus Mariota was frequently seeing under 20 pass attempts. And then Desmond Ritter took over last year, and it was 26 pass attempts, 28 pass attempts, 27 pass attempts. And it was like, whoa, the Falcons are really unleashing things. And I actually, I was surprised when I looked yesterday and saw that, that Ritter was in like the high 20s of pass attempts last year because in my mind, Ritter stepped in and was they were like, unleashing him and letting him throw the ball 30 times, 30 plus times, unleashed him in a conventional sense. It was that they had thrown so little with Mariota that when Ritter stepped in, like my memory of that situation was, man, and then they just let Ritter throw the ball. And I was like, no, they really didn't. It was still high 20s in pass attempts, which is obviously really low for most NFL teams. But it was just that they had thrown the ball so little, right? So that was how our perception of this team has been built. 
This year, we're on four straight games with Ritter throwing the ball over 30 times. So he wasn't doing that last year. This is another step forward for this offense. And on top of that, Washington, a relatively tough run defense and one of the worst pass defenses in the NFL this year, bottom three in pass defense DVOA. They've been attacked relentlessly by opponents. We know that Ritter plays better at home than he plays on the road. He has a 22 pointer this year. He has a 29 pointer this year. We know that he can run the ball. So uh, I think that spot is pretty interesting where yes, the Atlanta is kind of a shootout suppressor, but we can look at that game through the lens of last year. And it's like, oh, Atlanta doesn't throw the ball at all. And Washington is trying to play these grinded out games. But we really have to expand our thinking to what this year is providing. This year is providing a more pass balanced Atlanta team. Obviously, they still want to run the ball, but they're a more pass balanced team than they were last year. And Washington with Eric Bieniemy there is one of the most aggressive offenses in the NFL. So put that together and you have these opportunities for points to pile up if everything kind of comes together in that spot. So it won't surprise me if that game is 21 to 19, but it also won't surprise me if Atlanta tops 30 points, if Washington is scoring 27 points, something in that range, uh, and it ends up being a really nice game environment. So drilling down beyond the players and kind of looking at, hey, what are some spots we can build around? What are some game environments we can build around? Those are some interesting ones. And then last spot I will touch on and I'll get to this in the player grid as well in the Bink Machine rules, but it's also uh, it's laid out in the Bink Machine rules to see so you can see how I'm building it in the Bink Machine. But also, uh, which by the way, if you haven't used the Bink Machine, just a reminder that Sunday mornings um, you can actually download my own presets and rules, and then there's a voice note that I drop in there that walks through all of my rules, so that even if you're not importing my rules and using them directly, you can kind of get a sense of how I'm putting my rosters together, what my rules look like. It's basically everything for my builds, except my specific player pool, which you can kind of know my player pool from the player grid and um, from, from the rules that I talked through. So um, yeah, that's pretty cool. Uh, there was an inner circle member who requested this week that inner circle members also have access to that voice note. I think that's a cool, um, uh, cool idea. So um, we'll figure out how to, what, what I'll probably do is um, just make sure that it's uh, visible on that page to inner circle members as well. So you can go to the Bink machine if you're an inner circle member and listen to that on Sunday mornings. Um, okay. So this last, these last two spots are, well, I'll, I'll talk about this. I talk about this in the player grid this week. I've, I've written up like a third of the player grid so far. So I, I, Kind of dive into this in the player grid. I'll talk about it maybe a little bit more through the rest of this Engels podcast. But one of the statistics that I really like using is pre-touchdown fantasy scoring. And why that's a valuable statistic, there's a couple reasons. One, we know that touchdowns are one of the most high-variance components of NFL stat production, where though touchdowns can swing wildly, right? And players can be getting usage inside the 10 yard line, the touchdowns aren't there, or players can be scoring at a rate at an unsustainable rate. And so then the piggyback off of that is that pricing tends to be impacted to an extent by recent production. And pricing is also impacted from what we can understand from watching the DraftKings pricing algorithm for years, pricing is also dictated by ownership. 
players who continue to see high ownership at a particular price tag continue to hold on to that price tag. Players who are not seeing ownership, that price starts to drop. So if a player has been scoring touchdowns, their price starts to get inflated. If a player has been scoring touchdowns, the field sees the the fantasy points and doesn't necessarily separate the touchdowns from the pre-touchdown fantasy scoring. And so they are likely to, likelier to gravitate toward those plays. So the price goes up because there was higher production recently. The ownership goes up, which raises the price more and keeps the price from falling even after that um, that touchdown regression starts to hit. And then the pricing psychology, it's like, oh, this guy's priced here. He's clearly worth this. And people keep waiting for that next big game to come that might've been touchdown driven. Uh, so obviously we can understand that, yeah, like some guys are used more close to the close to the end zone than others. And some game environments are likelier to produce touchdowns than others. Some offenses are likelier to produce touchdowns than others. So we can't just look at pre-touchdown fantasy scoring and say, oh, this is all, all that we need. But it's a very valuable piece of the puzzle that we can look at it and say, okay, well, this guy is a better, like has a higher pre-touchdown fantasy scoring mark than this other guy who's priced 1K above him. And they have similar red zone usage and their offenses have similar implied team totals this week. And so clearly, and, and this cheaper guy is probably going to be lower owned as well because he hasn't hit the touchdowns lately. So it's things like that that we can really look for in, in you know, maximizing the players that we're putting on our rosters and our, our chance of really hitting on upside across our builds. Um, and again, doing it at lower ownership because people are going to be by and large off these plays that have recently not been scoring the touchdowns. Um, so a couple of interesting spots, and I'm going to say all that because I'm going to look at pre-touchdown fantasy scoring uh, here on this. Also, a quick little supplement here. Uh, the DFS Lab show on YouTube and on the One Week Season podcast feed, uh, usually Keegan and I build a roster together. Today, it was a solo show. And so I actually talked a lot through this pre-touchdown fantasy scoring and some specific numbers on different players. So you'll find some of these numbers in the player grid, but also if you want to double up on information here, uh, grab some stuff that might not show up in the player grid, uh, tap into that DFS lab episode as well, throw it on 2x speed and, and catch it all in, I don't know what, like 20, 25 minutes. Um, okay. So when a player is under 2x their salary and pre-touchdown fantasy scoring, that should stand out to us as like a little bit of a red flag. And those are not to say that those guys can't hit, but an example of that is Kenneth Walker. Since the start of last year, his pre-touchdown fantasy scoring is only 10.9 DraftKings points per game. And yet he's 6,700 this week, right? So uh, that means that 13.4 pre-touchdown fantasy points, pre-touchdown DraftKings points would be 2x his salary, he's well below that at 10.9. And this is why Kenneth Walker, since the start of last year, since the start of his career, has topped 20 DraftKings points. It's a guy who's 6,700. He's topped 20 DraftKings points only three times. Uh, I've somehow been fortunate that I've had like heavy Kenneth Walker exposure at least two of those three weeks, maybe all three of those weeks, and generally avoided him the other weeks. But he's a guy who people kind of always go toward because the the he scored 14 touchdowns since the start of last year. I think it's 14 that he scored since the, the start of last year. So it's like, oh man, like this guy's always putting up 16 points, 18 points, 19 points, 15 points, 17 points. And you can look at those game logs and say, oh, and then if things like take off, he can go to 30. But already he's getting the touchdowns and he's not even cracking 20 points because his pre-touchdown fantasy scoring is so low. And so even if he scores 
two touchdowns off his typical pre-touchdown fantasy scoring, that only gets you to 22.9 points. It's still nowhere close to what you need at his price tag. Um, so examples like that where you can see guys who are kind of maybe a little bit overpriced, not not to talk down on Kenneth Walker, right? Like like I've said, I've played him a number of times a few weeks ago. The, the One of the few times he's gone for 30 points, fortunately, he was on 26% of my rosters and was on a lot of my single entry three max roster. So there are weeks to play him and you might be seeing this as one of those weeks. We know that Cincinnati has, has been good against the pass and really bad against the run. So uh, I don't want to talk you off Kenneth Walker, but just laying out kind of what we see in the numbers. And then we have guys like Drake London, uh, he had the zero point game in week one this year. So let's, let's throw that out. He has eight other games with Desmond Ritter. So take away this one outlier in his other eight games with Desmond Ritter. He's averaging 12.2 pre touchdown DraftKings points per game. He's only 4,800 or 4,900, right? So he's way less expensive than Kenneth Walker. He's averaging more pre touchdown DraftKings points per game than Kenneth Walker. Now, again, Kenneth Walker does have 14 touchdowns since the start of last year. And Drake London isn't anywhere close to that and isn't going to get anywhere close to that touchdown scoring pace. So is Kenneth Walker, you know, as mispriced as the pre-touchdown numbers imply? And is Drake London, Drake London as mispriced as the pre-touchdown numbers imply? No, right? We have to take all of this into context, but just giving you examples of some of the things that we're looking for here. So uh, we're also always looking for where can we find a block of players that maybe we don't know who from this block is going to get the points, but it's a concentrated offense. We know that a set number of points is likely to be there on these players. And so we can take pieces out of that block and mix and match them across our rosters and know that on some of our rosters, we're going to get a a really good score. So uh, two weeks ago, a great example of that was when I had 80% Kyron Williams, 80% Puka Nakua, 80% Tutu Atwell, which do the math there. That means about 40% of my rosters had all three of those guys together. A lot of my rosters had two of those guys together. And some of my rosters had just one of those guys. And that allows for, you know, that there's this block of points. Again, they had been scoring. Uh, it was, there was, they did it again that week. So it was uh, three out of four weeks before Cooper cup came back the last three out of four games before Cooper cup came back. Those three players combined for 72 or more DraftKings. Points. Well, that was a pretty unique one in that their salary is actually 72 points was 4x their combined salary, which is why I could play all three of them together uh, and feel good about that. But you're basically saying like, well, if there's 72 points, that was after touchdown, but if there's 72 points available for these three guys, well, it's probably not being divided up 24, 24, 24. And even if it is, that's pretty good score for all these guys to throw out salary, right? Just getting 24 points from anybody isn't that bad. And probably they're not going to be exactly evenly distributed. So if I'm able to pull these pieces on a different rosters, the guy who gets 30 points or 35 points, like I'm going to get him on some of my rosters. So uh, spots, two spots this week that are not at that level, but are interesting spots in terms of, Hey, here's a block of pretty solid guaranteed points and we can mix and match pieces from here and feel pretty good about it. Um, Interestingly, both of these blocks cost the exact same amount in salary. The first one is Jordan Addison, KJ Osborne, and TJ Hawkinson. Obviously, we know that with Justin Jefferson out, those three guys kind of become the focal point. Who knows what will happen with Brandon Powell? This is not typically a team that involves a third pass catching, uh, a fourth pass catching option. Uh, but Brandon Powell did step in and see six targets last week. Kind of surprising. Uh, I'll take some shots on him as well. But this block of these three guys, 16.6K in salary. Interestingly, Evan Ingram 
Calvin Ridley and Christian Kirk, also 16.6K in salary. So uh, Ingram, Kirk, and Ridley are combining for 37 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game. So 16.6K times two is 33.2K. So in other words, this block of three players is above that 2x pre-touchdown fantasy scoring mark. And that includes, you know, whatever it's been, two and a half games with, with Zay Jones on the field, taking away some of the production himself. Uh, the Vikings block, if you add in Justin Jefferson, it comes up to 45.8 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game. If you take away Justin Jefferson, you know, does Kirk Cousins produce eight or nine fewer points to his skill position players, you know, does he throw for 40 fewer yards and four fewer completions than he would with Justin Jefferson on the field? It's pretty fair to say that that's about right. So again, you can bump these guys down to like that 37, 38 point range. So uh, both of those are blocks that I'm interested in this week from a standpoint of, you know, how do I set up my roster so that like I said, it takes one roster that you get right, whether that's one out of 150 in large field play or whether that's, you know, giving yourself enough rosters that you can mix and match that, uh, you know, like last week I had several rosters where I just had the exact same roster with HN on one and Mostert on the other. So you're basically saying whichever of these guys scores 25 plus points, I'm going to get them on. And if this roster ends up being really good across the board, it's going to all fall into place here. So you kind of give you, you increase, you put the math in your favor and increase your chance of getting everything right on one roster by in these spots where it's a concentrated offense, you don't necessarily know exactly which players are going to hit, but you can, you know that one of them probably will, and maybe two of them will. And so you can kind of pull those pieces out and spread them across your roster. So I like the idea of having Addison, Osborne, and Hawkinson spread across a large chunk of my rosters. I like the idea of having Kirk, Ridley, and Ingram spread across a large chunk of my roster. So uh, it's kind of a last component in terms of interesting elements that this slate provides. Okay, so with that, we are going to get to the bottom-up build. So if you're new here, concept behind the bottom-up build started with the idea that a lot of people start their rosters at the top. They figure out which high-priced players they want to play. And then you end up looking at some guy who's 4,100 and you say, you start justifying how he could have a good game. Oh, yeah, I like this guy. He could have a good game. This could happen. This could happen. Uh, so you end up putting in bad value in order to fit in the high-priced guys. So this exercise started as we would go from the bottom up, find the cheapest players that we liked and build a roster with that. See we had left over. This evolved into setting a salary cap of 44K and then creating a contest, a bottom-up build contest, where the rules are you have to play with 44K or less in salary. You can find that linked in the bottom-up build channel in Discord, or you can find that linked in my player grid once that's live in the scroll. Uh, winner of the bottom-up build contest wins $250 in courses on, on OWS and also gets a special Discord color so everybody knows you are a bottom-up build winner. Uh, and then this also, again, as we've expanded OWS to include so much more training content, especially with uh, the creation of Inner Circle in 2021, where weekly we're able to kind of focus on this stuff. Uh, this has now been minimized in the bottom-up build portion of this show, but we also use this to kind of talk through roster construction strategy and approach so that we can talk about what it, what 
we're trying to do with a roster, right? If everybody had 44K in salary, which again, we have a contest like that, how would we build a roster in order to differentiate things? Uh, there's also kind of a one final piece here in that I tend to have pieces on my own bottom-up build that are just guys that I want to make sure I have an opportunity to talk about. So uh, that is what the bottom-up build is all about. And this week's bottom-up build, so I already talked about, uh, well, actually, let's start right here. I'm going to have Chuba Hubbard on this bottom-up build. Throw him in at 4,300. Uh, I didn't expect to talk about Chuba Hubbard as much as I did earlier in the show. Um, so I wanted to have him on the bottom-up build just to say, like, you know, the stuff that I said earlier, give me an opportunity to talk about him. But Chuba Hubbard, 4,300, we've already touched on him. We will leave him at that. The next piece I'm going to put on here might not be all that surprising if you've been paying attention. This was a, uh, a block that I used in the building block section on my show with Pete Overzet today. We got a lot of comments in the uh, comments section, people with question marks and saying they're definitely not duping this roster this week, which I love, right? Because we love spots where we see something or at least where I see something and the field does not. And that is, if you're watching, you see it already happening. If you're listening, I'll tell you that is this Falcons passing attack. So again, Desmond Ritter, we can go ahead and pull up his game logs. Now, what scares people away 8.9 points in week one, 7.3 points in week three, 9.2 points in week four. For what it's worth, weeks three and four were on the road. Week one was against this Carolina team that's difficult to pass on and extremely easy to run on. Uh, this is a different sort of setup than that. Against a tough Green Bay pass defense, Desmond Ritter was able to put up 22.38 DraftKings points. Against a tough Houston pass defense that sold out to stop the run, he was able to put up 29.16 DraftKings points. Uh, as we have also mentioned, Drake London is definitely underpriced in terms of pre-touchdown fantasy scoring, pre-touchdown DraftKings scoring. Jonu Smith, also very underpriced in terms of pre-touchdown DraftKings scoring. He has 8.9 DraftKings points per game on the season, and he has not scored a touchdown yet. And in fact, that is that average is including week one when he had zero points. So look at these targets, six, eight, six, seven. This is not accidental usage. Jonu Smith is a guy who we used to roster for his low-cost upside when he was with Tennessee, when this exact same coach was his offensive coordinator in Arthur Smith. He went to the Patriots. The Patriots didn't know how to use him. Uh, he had no upside there. And then we, we, he shows up here with Atlanta week two, 8.7 points without a touchdown week three, 8.7 points without a touchdown week four, 15.5 points without a touchdown week five, 11.7 points without a touchdown. So you could go to Kyle Pitts here as well, but John o. Smith very much underpriced in terms of his role on this offense and how he is being used. So it uh, gives us a really nice starting point because a lot of people are going to be looking to pay up at quarterback, even, even in these, not pay up, but get these 6K quarterbacks, even in a bottom-up build, that's going to be where they're looking to go. And then they'll save salary in some other places. So saving a little bit of salary here gives us a little bit more flexibility than other people will have. And I also wanted to obviously touch on these guys as uh, pieces who are intriguing to me on this particular slate. Speaking of players who stand out in terms of pre-touchdown 
DraftKings scoring. DeAndre Swift in his four games as the lead back for the Eagles without any outlier production, without anything where we're like, eh, well, but we could throw out this game because this won't happen again. Uh, it's not like the Jamar Chase, you know, 200 or I don't know how many yards, but let's say DJ Moore, right? If we say, oh, DJ Moore, he's averaging, I think it's like 17 point five pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game this year. It's like, yeah, but he had a game with, what was it, 230 yards, you know? So that might not happen again. It's a small sample size, and that obviously weighs heavy in that small sample size. There's nothing like that for DeAndre Swift. He's averaging 17.7 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game. He's 6.1K. We already said if you're over 2K, that's when we kind of start, uh, 2X, that's when we kind of start paying attention. He's almost 3X his salary. Uh, Last year, Josh Jacobs, was 16.1 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game in that big season that he had for the Raiders. Uh, Last year, Jamar Chase was 16.9 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game. Uh, Devontae Adams was like 17.1 or 17.3, something like that. So compare DeAndre Swift to those guys. And then also recognize that DeAndre Swift, it's not like Drake London where, yeah, pre-touchdown fantasy scoring looks good, but but Desmond Ritter, you know, we saw it. He's got, what, four touchdown passes on the entire season. So what's the opportunity for the touchdown? Uh, DeAndre Swift on a team that scores a lot of points uh, in a role that can lead to multi-touchdown games. So DeAndre Swift, do I think he's going to stay at 17.7 pre-DraftKings touchdown, pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game? No, like that would be somewhat outlandish for him to be at that level that that would basically make him like an, an 8k running back but do i think that he can stay up above 14 and a half 15 pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game yes he's definitely underpriced here at 6100 so a uh, really nice piece to fit into this bottom-up build against the jets defense that is good but we also know that the eagles can score points against anyone and the jets have been hit for some big gains uh, by explosive running backs uh, a couple other guys who stand out this week in terms of their price tag and their potential ceiling. One is Josh Downs, 4,100. Uh, see here, he's averaging 9.7 DraftKings points per game. Hasn't scored a touchdown yet. So again, tells you where he's at there. Uh, underpriced compared to other guys around him. And he's kind of, I mean, let's look at his, let's look at his game logs. Actually, uh, we see, you know, the six, the 7.7, the 13.7, 5.4, 15.7. Interestingly, or maybe not so interestingly, the 13.7 came with Gardner Minshew under center. The 15.7 came with Gardner Minshew primarily under center. Uh, and the lower scoring games came with Anthony Richardson under center. Anthony Richardson, who's going to run the ball a lot more than Gardner Minshew. And Anthony Richardson, who's going to be a little bit less accurate in the short areas of the field. So uh, Josh Downs is a very interesting piece this week at 4,100 and should be able to score in the same range as Chuba Hubbard and has a chance to outscore Chuba Hubbard. So obviously in this instance, we have them together. I also don't mind situations where you go Josh Downs instead of Chuba Hubbard. And then that allows you to get that you know, other running back who might get you 25 to 30 points, the Alvin Kamara's, DeAndre Swift's, Raheem Mostert's, et cetera, um, and sort of pair up two of those types of guys at the running back position. So Josh Downs, a guy who stands out. And then again, I want to be looking for opportunities where I can to play these Vikings pieces, these um, these Jags pieces. So on this particular roster, what we're going to do is Christian Kirk. Christian Kirk is at, I think it's 13.4 
pre-touchdown DraftKings points per game. And look at that price tag of 5,400. I mean, that should really stand out to us. This is a guy who should be priced about 1K more than he is priced right now with Zay Jones expected to be on. I think that this this week one game is really still throwing people off of Christian Kirk, where he had only three targets, only 1.9 DraftKings points. Uh, look at this, only one touchdown on the year, and yet he's got a 24.96 game. I think he actually had a passing touchdown in that game, but uh, 24.96 game with no touchdowns scored. Uh, he has a, or I guess he didn't have a passing touchdown there. What did he have? Um, a pass completion for a few yards. Um We've got the these other three games, like 16.4, or the, these other couple games, 16.4, 14.4, without a touchdown scored. So uh, Christian Kirk obviously can have a two-touchdown game, right? So we throw that on top of a 15-point game, and all of a sudden this guy is putting up 27 points at 5,400. So uh, he's one of these guys who can be a separator on the slate in terms of what he is getting you for the salary spent. Um, and he's from that block of Jags players. Again, also like that block of Vikings players uh, on this particular roster. What we're going to do is pay up at the defense special teams position, go all the way up to the 49ers. We're talking about how can we do something unique from a strategy standpoint if everybody had uh, 44K in salary to spend. So where is a place where most people wouldn't be paying up defense? And so that's going to be a place where we go ahead and pay up. So you'll notice on this roster, we go a little bit more mid-range, right? We don't have Jamar Chase on this roster. We don't have Cooper Cup on this roster. We don't have Tyreek Hill, Devontae Adams on this roster. But we do have a guy in DeAndre Swift who can go for 30 points. We have a guy in Christian Kirk who can go for 30 points. We have guys in Drake London, John Smith, Chuba Hubbard who can all go for, excuse me, can all go for 20 points. We have Desmond Ritter who showed just last week that he can go for about 30 points. Uh, we have the 49ers defense that against P.J. Walker, it could end up being a bloodbath. It could end up being one of those games where you get 17 to 24 points from this defense. And then maybe the next best defense on the slate is nine points or 11 points. And it ends up being this big edge. So I'll have some rosters this week that focus on the 49ers defense. Uh, and then this leaves us with 6,900 in salary remaining. So what I am going to do is go to DJ Moore at 6,500. DJ Moore, who obviously pops in pre-touchdown, DraftKings points per game because he has 131 yards a couple of weeks ago and 230 yards last week and 104 yards in week two. Obviously, Denver, one of the softest pass defenses in the NFL. Washington, one of the softest pass defenses in the NFL. Minnesota has been more middle of the pack, but uh, still an interesting play. A lot of upside on this play and uh, gives us an opportunity to get one more of those potential 30-point players on this roster. Giving us a full roster, if you're listening to this, not watching this, of Desmond Ritter at quarterback, Chuba Hubbard, and DeAndre Swift at running back. Drake London, Josh Downs, Christian Kirk, and DJ Moore as our wide receivers. John o. Smith as our tight end and the 49ers defense. Uh, that basically does it for this week's show. Drop a comment if you're watching this on YouTube. Let us know if you like having this as a, a show where you can watch my face in a box on your screen. Uh, I feel like it went fine on my end doing it this way as opposed to the other way. So uh, yeah, definitely open to continuing to do this if you guys like it. Uh, and as always, I will see you on OWS throughout the weekend and I will see you at the top of the leaderboards on Sunday. Sunday.